you're visiting with us today, welcome. Um, we are doing an overview of the Bible, and today we come to the conclusion of the Old Testament overview. And today we're going to be looking at the book of, um, what's the last book of the Bible? Uh, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Should I, sorry, my bad. You look, we're good. Yeah, which one? Malachi. But we're not actually, well, let me not get ahead of myself. The book of Ezra. We have, <coughs> we've been trying to make the point that, two points actually, as we've been doing this Bible overview, looking at the whole of the Bible, recognizing the first thing is that it's one story. It's one continuous story. And um, this one continuous story talks particularly and specifically about one person. So there's always a hero of any good story, and the hero of the Bible is Jesus. And he comes up constantly throughout the Old Testament. Hopefully we're going to see again, um, not least of all today. And <clears throat> before, before we jump in, I know some of you ain't going to know what I'm talking about, but some of you hopefully will know who Steve Austin is. Anybody remember Lee Majors? You remember the bionic man? Steve Austin. Got mashed up in an accident. And they said, don't worry, we can rebuild him. You know what I'm saying? And when we finish, he's going to be better. He's going to be stronger. He's going to be faster. <laughs> now, what on earth has that got to do with Ezra? Well, Steve Austin was in a place where he was mashed up and broken. Busted. To the point where it looked like there was no hope for him. You know what I'm saying? In similar fashion, Judah are in a similar place where they're busted, broken, look like nothing good could come of Judah, particularly when they went into this captivity that we began to look at last week. And yet God had made a promise that he was going to keep, he was going to be faithful to. And it's funny because there's a couple of promises. One of the promises is that he was going to break his people. But another promise was that he was going to remake his people. You know what I mean? And, and with that in mind, let's pray as we get started. Father, thank you for word pictures. Thank you, Lord, for illustrations that help us to understand concepts that sometimes are very hard to grasp. Yet, Lord, I suspect today's isn't. And, <clears throat> Father, it talks about you rebuilding, you restoring. And, Lord, a nation, but also individuals. And, Father, we're going to see today that you're going to restore your nation. But, Lord, apart from restoring your nation and rebuilding them, thank you, Lord, that if you can do that with a nation, how much more with an individual? Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged today with regards to your power to transform us. Lord, to make us better, stronger. And Father, <clears throat> I do pray that even though we messed up in the garden and the devil contributed to that and continues to contribute to that, thank you, Lord, that you put in a plan you put a plan in place to rectify those problems. And I thank you that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that you've prepared for those that love you. Yet you've revealed it to us by your spirit. We get a snippet. We get a taster. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts 
to that end today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ezra. Oi. Rebuilding and restoration. You know that they got a six billion dollar man coming. It's, I mean, it was only a matter of time, right? And it's my boy. I, I do like a bit of Matt Damon in a manner of speaking. Is that Matt Damon? There's me thinking, is Matt Damon in um, Born? That's who I thought it was. Oh, I feel let down now. Is Mark Wahlberg going to be up to the task? He's good. Okay, uh, we'll see, innit? Is New Jurassic, what, Jurassic Park 15 or something? Same. Okay, so, over the course of the past four sessions, we've been looking at the prophets, right? We looked at them, or we're looking at them from four different perspectives. Minor prophets, we looked at Hosea. The major prophets, we looked at Isaiah. The prophets, with regards to the exile last week, who did we look at, remember? Begin with D. Daniel, thank you. We looked at Daniel as one of the prophets who prophesied during the exile, or during the time God's people went into captivity in Babylon. And today we're looking at a post-exilic, a post is afterwards, right? And so Ezra is, is our guy. And <clears throat> it's funny because uh, what, what's unusual about this book is that Ezra is, is not a prophet. Ezra is, the book is a, his, is, is a historic book or history book as opposed to a prophetic book specifically. Um, but what it's gonna do is it's gonna help us to see the correlation between history and prophecy. Um, and that's one of the reasons that um, I picked it. And fundamentally, we're gonna see how God fulfills his promise to rebuild and to restore, um, as declared particularly through the prophet Jeremiah, if you remember. So chronically, chronologically, Ezra comes after Second Chronicles, because <clears throat> Chronicles pretty much is chronicling the time of the kings. And, and here's a sum summary of the tragedy that we've looked at. Sorry, the words are a bit small, but I'm going to read it. Second Chronicles 36, 15 to 20 says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers, the prophets. Notice, again and again. right? Because he had pity on his people and note on his dwelling place. Remember from when we started our, our overview, we've been talking about God dwelling with his people. I remember he started right in the garden, the way it should have been, God chilling with Adam and Eve in the garden, dwelling with his people. And then because they sinned, they got, they got excommunicated from the garden, from God's presence, if you like. And since that time, you know what I'm saying, God has been bringing about the opportunity for us to be restored to him in right relationship, and we'll come back to, um, we'll kind of go back to the future in a moment. Um, but <clears throat> where was I? Um, verse six. So, 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 so God had pity on his people, end of verse 15, and on his dwelling place, because he'd created this place, this space where he could now meet with his people, right? Verse 16, but they mocked God's messengers, the prophets, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the, of, of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword and in the sanctuary. 
and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, looted the place, both large and small, and the treasures in the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile um, to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the king of Persia came to power. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So God's place had been temporarily abandoned <clears throat> his people were in the process of being disciplined um, and God's rule and all because God's rule had been forsaken and remember they turned away from the Mosaic covenant and God had warned his people before that this would happen and, and through the, the word of Jeremiah so Jeremiah 25 it says, the word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So it was a while before um, Nebuchadnezzar actually came and, and, and besieged Judah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and we'll see in verse 3 how long that was. So Jeremiah the prophet said, all, said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I've spoken it to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened to, to you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord your God gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made, their idols, right? Then I will not harm you. Verse seven, but you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made. And you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this. Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north. And my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Remember, we, Daniel came across the reality of the purpose of God's um, discipline with regards to Israel and that encouraged him to seek the Lord, right, through prayer and supplication. Now look what happens as a result of Jeremiah's fulfilled prophecy in Second Chronicles 36. Verse 22, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
<clears throat> in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. Now remember, things are dire. I read it because I wanted you to hear it. You know what I'm saying? But in the process of God declaring that his people would be, um, would go through torture because of their sinfulness, he also makes this promise that he's going to send this individual called Cyrus in the future at some point, And through him, he was going to bring about a restoration. And he says, he moved the Lord, moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And it was helpful that he did this because later they came across it and they were like, oh, look at this edict that was written. Verse 23, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Why? Because it's been destroyed, hasn't it? Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, neither of them are Jewish. They don't come from Israel or Judah. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're Gentile rulers. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and, and, and Cyrus, who, king of Persia. Yet both of these Gentiles, they recognize God as king. Whereas God's own people weren't recognizing him as king. See that? <clears throat> and we see who is ultimately responsible for not only the destruction of his people, his breaking of his people, but also the repatriation and the blessing of his people is God. And I'm saying it's not even these kings. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> everyone didn't return under this edict back to the land after the 70 years that we talked quite extensively about last week. Not everybody returned at the same time. There were three waves of returnees <clears throat> and um, from three geographic areas, um, from Jerusalem, from Babylon, and from Egypt. So first of all, some had remained in Jerusalem, I think as we, we read earlier. Those who remained were the poorest, they were the sickest, um, and the least skilled. Remember, Daniel went because he was very skillful, right? Um, some of the priests were left behind. <clears throat> and, and, and this group that were left behind and didn't go to Babylon, um, this is interesting because what they ended up doing was marrying um, <clears throat> those who were from Samaria. Because remember, Samaria, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Israel had already gone into um, Assyrian captivity, but there were still some left behind. So those that were left behind, Judah, who didn't go to Babylon, began to mingle with them and mix with them and intermarry. And you've got to remember that Samaria was really, I mean, Judah was backslidden, but Samaria took it to another level. They even created their own capital, Samaria, which was in northern Israel. And they even set up their own temple, the whole new set of priests. It was real off-key. They turned their back pretty much on the temple in Jerusalem. And, <clears throat> and, and, and these Samaritans um, had developed their own compromised version of Judaism. And, you know what I'm saying, even to, to this day, um, the Samaritans, they're distinct. They're distinct from 
from, from Judah. And it's funny because they don't accept the poetic or the prophetic books of the Hebrew scriptures. They kind of take bits from the Old Testament that they you know, kind of choose the bits that they want and leave out others. And it's funny because the Samaritans, they still believed in the God of Israel, but they worshipped at Mount Gerizim, as I, as I mentioned, instead of Jerusalem, with their own adapted worship practices. And that's modern day, that picture that you're looking at there. The Samaritans also had their own, their own Pentateuch, their old Old Testament. Well, Pentateuch is really just the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had it in Aramaic, and <clears throat> it differed from the Hebrew Pentateuch in places. Now, you might remember, um, like the Samaritans, hopefully, is a term that you're quite familiar with, semi-familiar with, and I'll re refresh your memory. In John chapter 4, speaking of, um, speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through where? Samaria. Now, if you know anything about your, your kind of first century Jewish history, like the Jews, they don't want nothing to do with the Samaritans. And, and the reason why is because of what I just explained. They're intermarried. They've got their own place of worship. It's like the syncretism. You know what I'm saying? They're not worshiping God in, in a faithful manner. So... The Jews, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, if they got to go north of Israel, which is Galilee, which is where Jesus is from, right, where, where he lived. He wasn't born, he was born in Bethlehem, but he lived up in, in the north. If the Jews wanted to go north, they would walk around Samaria, literally. They'd go to the coast, get in a boat, go up, and then come back inland. They didn't even want the dirt on, in the, gr on the ground to touch their feet. Or they'd go the other side, like the, the east, the west, the east, the east side, and east side, and they'd cross over the Jordan River, and then they'd go up that way, and then cross back over. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to go through Samaria, because that they hated the Samaritans, right? I remember even Jesus told a story about the good Samaritan that did bun them, because they don't, they don't like Samaritans. And here, Jesus, the classic in John four, Jesus meets this woman from Samaria. And she's there at 12 o'clock, like it's, it's the sixth hour, right? Counting from six o'clock is 12 o'clock noon. And she's there at noon when the sun is the hottest. Why? Because she's been married four, five times, you know what I'm saying? And the man that she's with is not her husband. She's a loose woman, if you like, and has been marginalized, even in Samaritan society. You know what I'm saying? But Jesus comes. Not only is, <laughs> not only is, he, is he standing there talking to a woman, he's standing there talking to a woman in Samaria. And she's Samaritan. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, verse 3 says, He left Judah, Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus is going north from south, right? And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. <clears throat> I didn't put that up there. Um, verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, then the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So you've got the background. You understand why she's saying this now, right? Because look, in parenthesis, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because they intermingled. Because they, 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 they got mixed up. You know, way back, like centuries, four centuries beforehand, this, this, um, 
prejudice still exists, right? And in verse 20, remember she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Gerizim, in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Right, does that make sense? So, um, you remember in Acts chapter eight, verse um, Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus in the Great Commission is really committed to reaching everyone because he says, he says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, he says, um, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, <laughs> and also to the uttermost parts of the world. Right. So Jesus is committed to mission in the same way that we should. I mean, there's loads of groups that I struggle with. If I'm honest, I'm very, very prejudiced. I, 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 I would ask the question, who isn't prejudiced? You know what I mean? I'll, sh I'll show you what, like, one of my big prejudices. I don't know if I've told this story, but I think it was at school in uh, LCM with the pioneers. But I remember, let me show you how prejudiced I am, yeah? I went, I went, to, I went to Ikea after a month. I, I can't even tell. It was a long time since I've been to Ikea. And there's me walking into Ikea. You know, like, Ikea is a place, when you go there, you, you need a couple hours, right? Car, you want to, like a butterfly, you just want to kind of pollinate a little bit and go and have a look over at the sofas and go, not that you're buying anything, but you know what I mean? It's just the experience and they lay the place out just like they set you up in it. So I'm walking through there and um, I'm like, all these people around me talking in different languages, most of them Eastern European, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, and then I see a whole, like, a whole batch of like people come in with hijabs and, and literally, I stood there, and this is the sinfulness of my heart. I looked there, I stood there, and I went, raw. I was like, where's my Ikea gone? Now, how off-key is that? But that just to show my prejudice, you know what I mean? And um, I can look at the Jews and think, are oh, you lot off-key because you hate the Samaritans? But um, may God help us. And I'm saying this, we're quick to, eat, to point out those who are racist, institutional racism and stuff that's going on with the police force and, and all of that stuff is, is, needs to be talked about. But let's remember when we point the finger at others, there's three normally pointing back at us. Let's take the beam out of our eye before we try to take the speck out of somebody else's. Not true? You know what I mean? And so, <clears throat> but my point is Jesus is committed to everybody. You know what I mean? He holds no prejudice in that sense. And um, we need to be the same, especially as we think about, you know what I'm saying, being faithful on mission. Um, we want to be a group of people that excludes no one. Amen. Um, so getting back to our story in Ezra, the returnees, um, <clears throat> I tell you, they're, they're like on, on, on something different. They're really, really, really committed. They're devout. These who have been in, in Babylon and are now coming back into the land, they're very zealous and... <clears throat> <laughs> they reject these Samaritans on their return. And the Samaritans, we're, uh, we're not going to see, but in the story, the Samaritans actually resist the rebuilding of, of the temple. And I'm saying there's a whole heap of drama that takes place. Anyway, <clears throat> um, and it's funny because what you see highlighted is God's people who were united at one point, King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. It was a united kingdom. After King Solomon, the, the kingdom split. And I'm saying there was division. And that division come about just because of sin. And, and often, if not, you know, 10 times out of 10, division, whether it's in a community or whether it's in a family, you know what I'm saying, or friendships, often it's because of sinfulness, you know what I mean? So, <clears throat> um, so one group of people were in Jerusalem. Another group of people 
as I mentioned, were in Babylon, right? And um, part of that group was Daniel, was Ezekiel. They were members, um, they were individuals who were still in Babylon. Um, no longer is, 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 um, are the Jews an agrarian people, because they're in Babylon. Remember, Babylon is a metropolis. It's like a built-up city. So where they used to plant and grow their own produce and so on when they were back home, for 70 years now, they've been living in the city. You know what I mean? And for all intents and purposes, they're really given out to commerce. And some would argue that um, it's not girls that run the world. You know, like Beyonce, is it Beyonce that's saying? I probably got that wrong as well, isn't it? Um, it, it? Oh my gosh, it was wrong. It wasn't Beyonce. Um, oh, it, <laughs> but it's not, it's not girls that run the world. Some say it's the Jews that run the world. You know what I'm saying? And that through commerce. You know what I'm saying? And it's argued that this is where all of that kind of really started in terms of their acumen given to the ability to, to create wealth in the way that they do. And... Um, um, some of those who remain in Babylon, <clears throat> even right up and re, even after the end of the exile, um, some returned, but some remained in. in, in I mean, it's like it would be, be a bit like my parents coming from Jamaica, coming to the UK, right? They're coming from an agrarian culture, plant food, and you know what I'm saying. There's a little bit of industry, but nothing massive, especially back in the 50s and the 60s. You know what I mean? Bauxite, I think, was the only thing we exported. They come to England now, and oh, wow, England. You know what I'm saying? Like some people used to think, oh, the streets are paved with gold in England. That's where we're, we're going. And we'll just stay there for a couple of years, you know, get some money, and then we'll go back home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it, often it doesn't work out like that. And you kind of get hooked. You get sucked in. And, um, and I suppose if it, it'd be like this going back to the land could be a bit like my parents going back to Jamaica, you know what I'm saying, and saying, all right, let's go back, Robert. And I'm like, go back. back, back. It's back for you. It ain't back for me. I weren't born in Jamaica. I was born in England. You know what I mean? So can you see where there would be a struggle? And, um, and, um, and in, a, in a similar fashion, um, some, some of the Jews didn't go back, stayed in, remained in Babylon. <clears throat> and again, even those who did go, they took a bit of Babylon with them. You know what I'm saying? And then the third group, some are in Egypt, although not many, including Jeremiah. He's one of the ones who ended up in Egypt for a short period of time. And it's funny because um, in Egypt, some of, the, some of the Jews, what they did was they, they later translated the Old Testament scriptures um, into, in, into Greek. Because later on, what you found is the Babylonians were conquered, as we see in a minute, by who? The, the Medes and the Persians, right? This is Cyrus. But then the Medes and the Persians get conquered by who? The who? The Greeks, Alexander the Great. So by, about, by that time, those Jews who, if you like, were familiar with, with, that, with that place, that is Egypt, they rewrote the Old Testament in the lingua franca, in Greek. So, do you know the name of the Old Testament or the Greek version of the New Testament? It begins with S. The Septuagint. Amen. And that's where that comes from. So, <clears throat> so that, those three groups, that's, they came over in three waves. <clears throat> Ezra um, is now after this 70 years of exile in Babylon. And we'll see as he now kind of steps into the scene, we're going to see the rebuilding and the, and the restoration, if not the reformation of the people in three waves. 
in, in, uh, I don't want to bombard you with dates and figures and so on, but I, I'll just share it just for those who, who find this interesting. Um, in 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeats the Babylonians. Remember, the Babylonians were bad. Like my mom would say, bad like Yars. And they were the ones who conquered the Judah. But look, years later, here comes just another group who now will conquer them. And as I said, here come the Greeks a little later and they will conquer them. But it's in 539 that Cyrus, um, the Mede the, and, the, and the Persians defeat the Babylonians. A year later, in 538 BC, Cyrus makes this decree that the Jews can return to their land and they can rebuild their temple. And then <clears throat> you get the first wave. They, they leave that year. And this is Ezra chapter 1 through to chapter 6, led by a man called Zerubbabel in chapter 3. And <clears throat> they, they begin to, to build the temple. But then because of these, Samari <laughs> these Samaritans causing drama, um, the temple is halted in terms of the rebuilding. And then here comes Haggai and Zechariah. Who are, who are two of the minor prophets, and they come declaring the word of the Lord, prophesying to the people, look, we need to finish the temple. We need to rebuild the temple. We're back in the land. We need to fix what needs fixing. And this happens during chapter 4 and 6 of this very book of Ezra. And remember, the Persian Empire is now in power. Um, who's the very well-known Old Testament character in Persia? And there's only two women in the book. It's one of them. That's a big clue. And it's not Ruth. <laughs> Her name begins with E. Esther. Esther. So it's around about this time. Esther is in Persia. You know what I'm saying? And hopefully you're getting the storyline. Um, and then we have this second wave. Oh, sorry, that's Esther. We have this second wave. This expedition. Um, and it, if you like, it's, it's the religious reformation under Agai, Ezra, who's a priest, in chapter 7 and 8. And in chapter... Um, verse 10 of chapter 7 is quite a classic verse because it says that Ezra, he studied the scriptures and he made a commitment to keep them and then he made a commitment to teach them. And there's this kind of threefold um, principle that's a really healthy one for all of us to study the scriptures, to, to, to commit ourselves to, to, to obeying them personally and then sharing them, you know what I'm saying, with others, whether privately or publicly with others. And... <clears throat> And, and, and then we, in chapter 9 and 10, we see this incredible spiritual reform. And no great surprise, if you've got a man who commits himself in that fashion, as he's beginning to share and preach, and I think you see the first pulpit erected, you know what I'm saying? And he stands on this pulpit and he's preaching for something like, if you think, like me and Pastor, he preached for long. He preached for something like six hours, you know what I mean? And, um, and, and shared the word of the Lord. Because a lot of the people now, remember, it's been 70 years, some of them have never heard this stuff before. You know what I mean? And particularly in this new context, back in the land. <clears throat> and, then, and then we have this third wave as they're going back now into the land, out of captivity, in 444 BC, led by Nehemiah, um, which is a great book. <clears throat> and um, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures are actually together. They're one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And these guys are all contemporaries. They're all around at the same time. Incidentally, when Nebuchadnezzar um, originally captured Jerusalem 70 years earlier, you see them go back in three waves, he took them in in three waves. And it was just interesting to see that happen in the reverse. Um, so that's the restoration period. Um, the restoration period where God restores his people back into the land. 
and it took 70 years. At this point, it's probably helpful just to mention, God restores, you know what I'm saying, nations, but he restores individuals as well. And I'm not sure where you're at personally, you know what I'm saying, in your life. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, genuinely, I, I just thought of, if, do I open this kind of worms? Uh, genuinely, um, your life is, your life, my life, our lives, especially as Christians, is not going to be straightforward. You know what I mean? And we will go through ups, but we will go through downs. We'll go through, you know what I'm saying, uh, hills, and we'll go through valleys. We'll go through bright times and the sun is shining, but we're going to go through those dark times when we are so low, you know what I'm saying, you feel like not, you're not just rock bottom, you're in the basement. You get me? And I'd just like to say, don't be discouraged by that. You know what I mean? Some of it is the testing of your faith. You know what I'm saying? Um, but some of it is just a product of living in a fallen world. This is the reality of the Christian life. You know what I mean? And there are, there are some environments that you might go into, kind of church Christian environments, quote unquote, and they'll talk about overcoming and you should never ever be sick. You should never be poor. You should have the best of everything. This is not realistic, first of all, and it's far from biblical. You know what I mean? And so if you are going for a difficult time, don't despair. You know what I'm saying? What you are experiencing is the reality of the Christian life. You know what I mean? And um, it's like I heard about this new church movement where like, like I could not believe like someone was telling me about it. Like, you know, you know, you got like the pros prosperity kind of movement, like the word of faith movement. If you got like the, 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 the whole thing about if you have a need, sow a seed. That whole like twisted way of getting people to give, you know what I'm saying? And really to the pastors and to those who lead the ministry and and I mean, I'm pretty much lie to people, saying that you know, if you give X amount, you get back X amount, just motivating people wrongly to give and all of that stuff, right? We talk about all that stuff. Um, but my friend said to me, he said, Rob, did you not, like, you don't know the half of it. He said, they encourage you to, have you heard the 90-10 rule? I was like, the 90-10 rule? And I thought, is that some evangelism type? He said, no, it's you give 90% of your salary and you keep back 10%. I mean, talk about taking things to another level. And he said he knows people, he knows a woman personally who couldn't pay her bills and she was asking him to lend her money. And, he, and it was, it's, just, it's just terribly sad. You know what I mean? Now, 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 I'm saying stay away from that stuff. You know what I mean? Stay away from that stuff. Because all it is, is, it's like get rich quick schemes. You know what I'm saying? Like, is, is it in First Timothy 5 or 6? talks about um, those who think godliness is a means to great gain. You know what I mean? And, and like Peter says, that certain individuals take the scriptures and twist them for their own benefit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, stay, stay away from that stuff. And I'm saying, <laughs> that stuff can seem appealing, especially when you're going through hard times, especially when things are hard, especially when, you know what I mean? Um, and <clears throat> so... If you are in a difficult place, you know what I'm saying? Like Israel, I'm going I'm to read some verses in a minute from Jeremiah that hopefully will bring some encouragement. But at that point, let me, um, let me just pause there. I'll come back to it. <clears throat> so there are two aspects to the return from Babylon. And if you like, it's... Here we go. The rebuilding of the temple. 
and the reformation of the people. Those two things, rebuilding of the temple and the reformation of the people. Um, Ezra, <clears throat> he is, he's, he's, he's a contemporary, you heard of Buddha? Where's Buddha from? India, right? So about this time, Confucius, China, Socrates, Greece. So these are all contemporaries with Ezra. These big guys, big guns, right? And I'm saying are alive roughly around about this time. Ezra is, he's a priest. Um, you see it in, in chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. And as I said, he studied, particularly as a scribe, and he taught as an educated individual the word of God. Um, he, it is argued, is the founder of the modern synagogue. And um, if you remember, because of the exile, um, three things were lost, right? They lost the priesthood in one sense. They lost the system of the sacrifices, nowhere to bring your offerings, right? And they also lost this central sanctuary, you know what I'm saying? God's meeting place. They lost that. You know what I mean? So what do they do now in Babylon, you know what I mean? By the rivers of Babylon where they sat down and they wept, right? Well, how did they meet? Well, they would meet in synagogues. And it's argued that um, Ezra was someone who instituted this, who inspired this. And there's some ancient ruins of an ancient synagogue. You know what I mean? <clears throat> they, they temporarily um, replaced the destroyed temple. And the, the synagogue was a consecrated place. It was a a house of assembly. It was a place of prayer. And after the return from the captivity, when the, um, the religious life was reorganized back in, in, in the land, back in, Jer in Jerusalem, back in Judah, as they could reconstruct the temple, especially under Ezra and his successors, you would find these synagogues kind of popping up in different places. Again, because there's no temple to work. So where are we going to... So they'd... They, they brought this idea, if you like, back into, into Judah. And so you'd find these synagogues. Hence, Jesus, even in Galilee, in, in Luke chapter 4, where does he go? He goes into his local synagogue and he cracks the, 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 the scroll, rolls open the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from that in the synagogue. You know what I'm saying? And, <clears throat> and there they had congregational worship. And... <clears throat> If you like, these were developed side by side to the temple as the temple was being redeveloped and rebuilt. <clears throat> and thus this led to the, the, the well, <clears throat> incidentally, the, the, the word for synagogue is Knesset. Knesset, and maybe that might, that might sound a little bit familiar. Um, Knesset, anybody know what that word is used for particularly? Gathering, that's exactly what the word means. But in, in Israel, like modern day, all right, so we got the houses of parliament, right? In, Ju in Jerusalem, in Israel, they have the Knesset, you know what I'm saying? And if you look at it, it looks a bit like a temple, doesn't it? But this is where um, the government meets and makes their decisions, you know what I'm saying? At this <coughs> Knesset, and it's the same, that same word for synagogue, it's, a, it's where the, uh, the government actually meet. And... Um, I'll just show, the, the, I'll show a picture of inside. Even inside 
you know what I'm saying, looks a little bit like the synagogue. You know what I'm saying? You've got the people seated around and then you've got that front area, if you like, where the, the preacher or the speaker would get up and, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of slightly different even to the way we set up, at least in terms of our parliament. Um, but this is all a reflection, you know what I'm saying, of the past and that which is ingrained in, obviously, Jewish society, um, that is their spirituality. So Ezra, um, possibly the founder of the synagogue, um, he was a real entrepreneur. Um, it, it's argued that he also is the individual who contributed to canonizing the 39 books of the Old Testament, kind of like bringing them together, collating them. Ezra, the scribe. Now, it's good to know this stuff. So when you bump into him in heaven, you've got something to talk about, right? Like, who's Ezra? <laughs> um, so what we're seeing is, is, is God's faithfulness. Discipline, disciplining, but also delivering his people. You know what I'm saying? God kind of tearing them down, but in order fundamentally to build them up. And you know, sometimes you just have to do that. There's a time to tear down. You know what I mean? And there's also a time, Ecclesiastes says, to build up. And, and that also in our lives as individuals. You know what I mean? We need to see that. We need to appreciate that. That is God's goodness. That's his faithfulness at work in our lives. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Rebuilding and restoring. So it's, in, it's incredible. God provided these pagan kings um, to benefit and bless his people. I mean, they prospered during this 70 years, even though it was difficult and they were out of the land. And they were encouraged now to go back and to rebuild. And listen to this very, 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 very familiar verse. And I'll come back to what I was saying about feeling mashup and the Lord speaking words of encouragement. This is a word that people use often, but completely out of its context. Now listen to it in its proper context. I mean, it's the, you, can, you can still read it and, and be blessed by it. But listen to it in its proper, in its, what they call it, sits and Lieben. In its proper context. Jeremiah 29. It, I might just have to read it for you. Maybe I didn't put it up. I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah 29 uh, verse 10 says. For thus says the Lord. Maybe it's better that you can't see it. You listen to it more carefully. For thus says the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will revisit you. See you know it's God. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't forsake I should say his people. Right. He says, when seven years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, this is the verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God's faithfulness in bringing his people back to their place. And I'm saying, but not before breaking them down. That also is God's faithfulness. And God would keep, <clears throat> he would keep, it's funny, David's messianic line alive, even though they were going to go through the 70 years of captivity. A king was to be born, we, we know, in Bethlehem at a certain point, not Babylon, right? 
And, and Zerubbabel actually is the, the line, the lineage from which we get um, previous kings and then kings who were to come in the future. Um, and obviously we're going to see that one of those individuals is actually the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> so we've been saying that the whole Bible is one story. We're hope, I'm hoping that you're seeing that. Um, also, we've been saying that the whole story is about Jesus. So Zerubbabel has a son, has a son who has a son. But before we talk about that, let's just talk briefly about the temple because it does come up as a, as a massive topic in the book of Ezra. So Ezra chapter 3, hopefully I've got this for you. Ezra 3 says, and really there, there are loads of points that I could have made. I'm just going to make this one point and then we're done. All right? <clears throat> the temple. Old Testament, New Testament, how does it all work? One story, right? Ezra 3 verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. This is them rebuilding now, right? Because it's been broken down. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They read their Bible, right? Verse 11, and they sang responsively. That was like call and response. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good. You know what I'm saying? For his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. So like the priest would say, let's give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And the people would respond, for his mercy endures forever. And they'd, they'd sing it in better tune than that. Um, <clears throat> verse, uh, middle of verse 11. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses Old men who had seen the first house, they weren't singing, they weren't clapping and cheering. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. There's a little bit of a kind of contradiction. It's a bit of a puzzle here. Like some are really, really happy and some are really, really sad. Two opposites, right? Verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So there's a little bit of a puzzle here. And how do we make sense of this? <clears throat> Why are some jubilant and others are mourning? Well, it said some of the old ones. These old ones, they knew what the old temple was like. right? And some of these newbies who were rejoicing hadn't seen the old temple. So they couldn't really compare. They were just happy that the temple was going up. But the older ones... They were like, hmm, this is, this is not what it used to be. Because they, they, they were aware of Solomon's temple that was incredible. And I'll show you kind of like some pictures in a minute. Um, Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 says, <clears throat> remember Haggai is one of the prophets who comes along a little bit later. It says, it says the, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you remember when God made the covenant with David? David said, I'm going to build a Lord a house. And the Lord's like, mm, great, that's a great idea, David, but I'm actually going to build you a house. Right? Remember that? Um, and it's funny because Solomon, David kind of gives all the, everything that's needed to, for, the re, for the building of the first temple under Solomon. He builds this amazing temple. <clears throat> 
And it's, it's really crazy, again, as you think about just the history of God's people and seeing it as one story. So remember, you had, I should say, first of all, you had the temple that was in Eden, right? I, I, I say that without qualifying it because we talked about it before. And if you're like, huh, what temple in Eden? You have to go back and listen to that. I can't remember what week we did it, but... But then later on, God's people, they're in Egypt, they come out of Egypt and they're walking through the wilderness and, 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 they, and they construct the tabernacle, don't they? And it's a collapsible, portable temple. You know what I mean? And in this temple, you've got palm trees inscribed on the walls and pomegranates, which is very similar to the Garden of Eden. That's why I reference it as a temple, right? And all the, all Because it's supposed to remind them of God. The God remember where God met with his people in the garden. And this is the temple and all of these reminders. Now, this is the place where God meets with us, right? So that was the tabernacle. And then you fast forward in terms of the tabernacle and you come to Solomon's temple, as I just mentioned. He built this incredible... David's looking out the window at the collapsible tabernacle, the tent thing. And he's like, it's like when you go to Lewisham Hospital. You know, you sit down in the bed, they've got the, sh -sh -sh -sh, the curtain around you. That's what David's looking at, the tabernacle. He's thinking, that's not very glorious. That's why he says, I want to build God a house, right? So Solomon comes and he does it. And it's an incredible temple. There's a picture in a minute I'm going to show you. So you see this transition of God's dwelling place, right? Then you move on and we come to the temple being destroyed. Hence them going into Babylonian captivity, right? And, 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 then, and then Zerubbabel now, they begin to try to rebuild this temple, which is what we've been talking about. And it's crazy because what happens is Zerubbabel's temple that they're looking at now, some are going, yeah, and some are going, mm, it's not really all that. That kind of gets dismantled and then rebuilt again under King Herod. Right, and he kind of expands on the temple. So I'm saying, can you see all these transitions with regards to God's place, with God's people in God's place, and this temple business, right? So I think this is a better picture of the progression. So you've got the tabernacle, then you've got Solomon's temple, then you've got Zerubbabel's temple. There ain't really nothing on Solomon's temple. And then you've got Herod's temple where he, you know, he kind of expands the temple to some degree. <sighs> This whole thing about the, the glory of the latter house exceeding the glory of the former house. One of the questions I would ask is, as much as they keep building the temple, guess what keeps on happening? It keeps on getting destroyed. What happens to Herod's temple, as great and glorious as it was? This is the temple that Jesus walked in. And I'm saying it was licking, knocking over tables and chairs, right? And whipping the sheep. What happened to even that temple? 70 AD, the Romans came and they leveled the temple. It's like this constant destruction of the temple. Could it be because God is in the process of fulfilling the promise that he made to David of building a new temple? But this temple is not a temple made with hands. If you like, in John chapter 2, we get some incredible insight. This changed the way I understood the Bible when I understood John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, it says, And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
is from north, but it's going down. Down is, is when you go up to the city. When you go to the city, even though you're going south, you're going up. In a temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now listen to this second section. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this what? Temple that he's standing in. And this is Herod's temple still standing, right? This is pre-70 AD. He says, destroy this temple that he's standing in. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Can you see something seismic take place there? It's like, even Jesus, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, at, yeah, the woman at the well, and she's talking about, oh, we worship here, you worship there. Jesus says, you know, a time's coming where you're not going to worship indefinitely up here in Samaria, but not even in Jerusalem. And I'm saying, because God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not even about a geographical place. And I'm saying anymore. See, God's temple, I'm arguing, isn't ultimately a a, a building physically speaking you know what they say oh where's St. Barnabas church oh yeah go down the road turn left and it's on the corner that's not the church that's an old building you know and I'm saying but the church of the people I mean our name for our church is Ecclesia because Ecclesia means church in Greek you know what I mean and so the temple God's temple it isn't a building physically, but it's a building spiritually speaking. And, 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 and again, this is, this is my perspective, isn't it? But you have many that are looking about the rebuilding of another temple in Jerusalem. Oh, you're not going to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. It's going to fulfill Bible prophecy. And, but is it? I've showed you. Look how many times the building get licked down and rebuilt. And then Jesus, 2,000 years ago, says... You wanna, you wanna, if you want to think about the temple, don't think about the building. I am the temple. I never said that. Did you hear Jesus say that? He said, I am the temple, right? Now watch this. <clears throat> in 1 Peter 2, how many of you know Jesus isn't the only person in the temple? <laughs> I'll let the scripture speak because I'm, I'm not really communicating very well. 1 Peter 2 says, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus... A living stone, this is Jesus speaking about, speaking about Jesus. He's a living stone. He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Right, it's a quote from the Old Testament. And you, now we know Jesus is chosen. We know that he's precious. And the scripture ref, refers to him as a living, not just a stone or a boulder or a block or a brick. You know what I'm saying? Or a st he, he's not, he's a living stone. So there's a bit of a, it's a bit of a metaphor in a sense, you know what I'm saying? He's a brick or a block, you know what I'm saying, but not physically, spiritually speaking, right? 
He's a living stone. And notice verse 5, and you yourselves, Christians, in the context, like living stones, are being built up as a what? A spiritual house or a temple, right? To be a, a notice. We know it's a temple because look, it's got a priesthood. A holy priesthood to offer sacrifices, but not literal bulls and goats. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so look at the story. Look at the trajectory of the story. We still, we still make sacrifices, but they're not literal. They're spiritual. I'm saying in Hebrews, it talks about the fruit of your lips giving thanks to his name. That's a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice, old school, a sacrifice of praise into the house. Again, completely out, out of key. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Right, see, we bring the, we, when you come in and like, and for, for, for those of us that, you know, can make it in on time, you know what I'm saying? We can't, and you sing, you're actually offering up sacrifices but they're spiritual. Can you see the continuity but the discontinuity? We don't offer up bulls and goats, but some want to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so that they can offer bulls and goats. You know, they started breeding the red heifer long time, which is the particular type of cow for the sacrifices. They made all of the snuff boxes, all, the, all of the flesh hooks, everything that you need. They've recreated the, the, the bronze altar, and they've recreated the, the bronze laver where you wash. All of the implements, they've created them. And they, sometimes you see, they try to take them up, the, up, the, up Mount Zion on the back of an articulated 18-wheel lorry. And then they get up there, and you know you've got the drama because you've got the Dome of the Rock. You've got the most, it's, it's the second most holy place in, in Islam, isn't it? And they can't get up there because of the drama, but they want to get up there so they can rebuild a temple and start offering up sacrifices again. Synagogue's great, but they want the temple again. But I'm not even Jewish. You know what I'm saying? Here's me, like, a, like, a, a, like some youth from South London. I'm going to tell a, like a Jewish individual about his history and what it really means and then point them to Jesus in saying all of that stuff. It's just shadows and types. And you know what a shadow is? If, 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 if Byron is coming around the corner, I see his shadow. You know what I'm saying? I don't go up to his shadow and start talking to his shadow. Why? Because I know the shadow is pointing to the person. And I know he's going to block the corner in a minute. And I will talk to him, not his shadow. The shadow points to him. All of these shadows in the Old Testament are fundamentally pointing. And we're just talking about the temple. There are so many other pictures and types and shadows that point like signs to Jesus because he's the central character of the text, of the scriptures, of the Bible. But can you see how he is the temple, but now he's bringing others into the temple like bricks to make up this spiritual house. First Corinthians 3, let, again, let me just let the scripture speak for itself. First Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you, Christians, in Corinth, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God would destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, could that be any clearer? 
Jesus is the chief cornerstone and we are bricks, blocks built up in him that make up a spiritual house. Ephesians chapter 2 says so. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, even though you're not Jewish, right? But you, Ephesians, who Gentiles, are, because this is, this is kind of Turkey, that area there. Um, it, 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 for you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice, built on the foundation. Oh, what, literal foundation, bricks and mortar? No, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's the fundamental stone. He's the important stone. He's the stone from which we get all of the guidelines and the bearings, right? He's the vital stone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. I'm trying to tell you, God's not meeting with his people, you know what I'm saying, in, in a small garden in one particular part of the world. God's not meeting with his people in the tabernacle, as great and as amazing as it is, that's collapsible and we keep moving it. Because remember, every time the, sh the, the cloud moved, or the, they had to move with the cloud. And then they get into the promised land, and then they, re they, do, they build this greater structure, and it's a temple, and it's, whoa, it's amazing. Solomon's temple, it's, it's glorious, right? And this is where God meets with his people. You want to meet with God this is where God meets with his people at that particular point in time but then that that gets destroyed by the Babylonians and they go into exile and then they come back oh, let's build a temple again and they build a temple some of them get it some of them don't get it some of them are like yeah 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 some of them are like, mm. this don't really this is not as good as the old, old one maybe maybe God's trying to tell us something and then and then Herod comes and re Zerubbabel builds a temple and then and, and then Herod extends it and Jesus is standing in it, you know what I'm saying? And he says, don't look at this temple. I'm the temple now. And this is going to get leveled in 70 AD anyway. So, so who's, in a who, who, who's in a hurry now to go to Israel and rebuild the temple is a question. When the New Testament is, is being explicit in telling us what the temple is now. And to end. <clears throat> I'm saying this mysterious transition has taken place with regards to the temple. Revelation sums it up really nicely. Verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem. It's crazy. In the book of Genesis, it started where? God's people with God in their place. What was it? There was a garden. Just a few people. Now look where they've arrived at. It's a city. Can you see that? And Jesus says, you're a city on a hill. That is the church. I saw a new heaven. And, and, and at verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. New, not, not physical Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, right? What is this? It's mysterious. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Symbolic metaphor, isn't it? Who's this talking about? Now, we're here as Christians, we're the church, but we're not just, you know, there's a lot of people apart from us who are the church, apart from those who are across the globe alive, how many of you know 
for centuries Christians have been dying. Where are they? They're with the Lord, aren't they? So it makes sense that, I mean, they're somewhere and here they come, coming down from heaven. You know what I'm saying? And obviously, mysteriously, we're a part of that as well because it's, it's the building, isn't it? It's, but it's not a building. Because it's, it's a bride, <laughs> adorned for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the, throne say, from the throne saying, Behold, oh my gosh, the dwelling place of God is with man. You know, religion constantly encourages, you want to you get to God? Well, this is how you get to God. You know what I'm saying? Climb up this ladder. You know what I mean? And work hard and who knows, maybe you find God at the top. That's religion, us trying to find God. How many of you know, like, Christianity is completely different. God comes looking for us. You know what I'm saying? Look. Behold, a dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Remember, we're a city set on a hill. He took me away to a great high mountain. And, and did you know that Jerusalem is actually on a hill? That's why it's called Mount Zion. He says, he took me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were, were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. South, three gates. West, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is symbolic metaphor. Verse, 21, verse 15 to 21 gives the dimensions and the materials that make up this mysterious city. But essentially, what we're looking at is paradise lost. If you like, this is the new Eden. This is the new place where God meets with his people. It was a garden, now it's a city. Before it was just one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. Now, it's millions of men and women. It's not just one nation Israel, it's multiple nations and tribes and languages and peoples and nations. Verse 22, and I saw, look, no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. I'm going to invite the team to come and join me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, <clears throat> in the beginning, we had a really good thing going. Like my man sang, a real good thing going in the garden. We had relationship with you, but then quickly, by chapter three, not even two chapters in, 
we sinned. And Adam and Eve had their relationship broken with you. And it was because of our sinfulness, Lord. And every one of us sitting in this room has been affected by that contagious, deadly disease called sin. But thank you, Father, that you had a plan. You had a plan to restore sinful man back to yourself again. And not just restore us to normal, but to transform us. Something better than bionic. And Jesus paid much more than, than just six million dollars to rebuild us, to remake us even. Jesus laid down his priceless life in order to purchase our redemption. Rebuilt us, restored us. Lord, thank you that you're not just into homes under the hammer, physical buildings, but more importantly, you're concerned about people. And I thank you because, Lord, now you've taken us and you've placed us like bricks, as living stones, into this, your new spiritual temple. Father, would you encourage our hearts, I pray. Thank you, Lord. No stone is the same as the next stone. They're all different. And just like that, Lord, we're all different. And I know, Lord, you know, different ones of us are in different places in our lives at this moment. But Lord, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts with this glorious future. Lord, there's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. Father, I, I constantly get sucked in with reference to the things of this world and the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. And I want them. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I want it. Everything in my flesh wants that. I want notoriety. I want position. I want fame. I want fortune. I want it. But yet, Lord, none of this thing, none of this stuff has any real eternal value. It's not to say I can't have it. It's not to say a person can't be rich. Um, but Lord, sometimes that stuff keeps us back from you. Stuff. It's, it's, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God because when you've got riches, you, you, you trust in them. I don't need anything. I don't need God. I have everything I need. But Lord, then what happens, Lord, when, like Job, I die? Because like he said, naked I came into this world. And, it, I'm, and, and I'm leaving exactly the same way I came in. Naked. Lord, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that. That is the facts. And so, Father, with this in mind, help us, Lord. Help us to be, help us to recognize just how valuable we are to you. That you would take us, Lord, and you would place us as living stones in your beautiful temple. What a privilege that is for us. We don't just go into a temple. We don't just look at a temple. We are a part of the temple. Jesus himself says he's a living stone. Jesus, Jesus comes and he identifies with us and calls us his brothers and us and his sisters. Thank you, Father, that 
this incredible story is not just a story that we look at or we watch from a distance, but you make us a part of this story, your story, his, his, his story, your story. And I, I pray, Father, that on that basis we'd be greatly encouraged, especially as we think about the future and how glorious it is. Everything in this world is going to pale into insignificance in comparison. And how wonderful, Lord, we read. You're going to wipe away every tear. No more pain, no more suffering. The text says no more death. Our greatest enemy. Thank you, Lord, for this. And it's all because of the Lord Jesus. The one who is the central character of this whole incredible story. Um, open our eyes to see that I pray. For his sake. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.